listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. John chapter 4 this morning, and before we uh, dive into the text, let me just mention our Give Hope offering. Um, we want to uh, raise uh, funds to uh, help us uh, support in the coming few months uh, Keith and Rachel. Uh, I've known Keith for several years now, and um, he's played a vital role in my life as I've met with him um, sometimes on a monthly basis, sometimes on a weekly basis when he was in Prague. Um, had opportunity to have them in my home, been in their home, uh, seen their family, interacted with them. Um, and upon meeting Keith, I, I even thought in my own heart, I wish there was some way that I could work with this brother because he's not just trying to deal with things on the surface, he's trying to dig into our hearts. And so he's been able to do that with several people on an individual basis here at South Point, he and Rachel both, and um, a- as well as groups. What Keith has done in uh, Europe, if, if you'd just take a minute to ask him about that, I, I'm sure he could give you um, a synopsis of it, is uh, he's had the opportunity um, to uh, work not only with individuals but work with, with atheist people that don't believe, agnostics, but also work with missionary groups that, that may be struggling relationally. But also there are groups that are meeting all over Europe now where he has facilitated those groups and they've grown where disciples are making disciples but their focus is soul care, um, dealing with the issues that are going on deep within us. And some, somebody that's been talking with Keith for a couple of weeks just wrote this. Um, soul, uh, give Hope, this Give Hope offering, here's what it's about. Um, it's where soul care aligns a person to their source of true life. As a church, we want to see the family of God equipped with the heart and skills to engage Scripture and one another with whole hearts in spiritual conversations where there is curiosity about what the Spirit might be up to within the other person within communities who stir our thirst for God as a deeper thirst than life according to our definitions of life. We need you to give to match the need of the community. Those who call South Point home and those who don't know Jesus Christ yet. Hope is not going to be found in a better life, but a a better love. And that's what it's about. Now, if you've never experienced that, um, like me and um, several others have, uh, all of us as staff pastors have experienced time with Keith and Rachel. Um, My DNA has experienced time with them, and I could have those guys come up, and they'd they'd severely cut into my preaching time. Um, So I'm not going to do that this morning. But... um, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to get you to join us in facilitating something that God has placed in front of us by his providence in leaving this brother, this dear brother and his family here as opposed to not allowing them to go back to Prague. And so uh, if you'll join us in that effort by giving to Give Hope, you can give on our website. Um, Advent candle for services. We started out by talking about hope from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 13. Uh, we moved from um, hope uh, to, uh, to joy, and we looked at um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. We moved from, uh, excuse me, not, not joy but peace. We moved from peace to joy in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 9. And today we're going to be talking about love. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Um, wh- what is love? We need to begin there before we try to set the context for the passage and look at these six verses. Um, There are many inadequate definitions. There are many inadequate examples and explanations that the world tries to offer. The world thinks it knows what love is. I was uh, talking to Alexa yesterday, and I said, Alexa, play me some James Taylor. I love James Taylor. He was my hero growing up, and I wanted to be like, I didn't want to look like him, but I wanted to sing and play guitar like James Taylor. Um, and like to have his money too, but anyway. Um, and so um, I started listening, and he says, shower the people you love with love. You know, everybody writes about that. All we need is love. I think the Beatles wrote that. Uh, all of the songs growing up in the, the 70s were about love, some form of love. But nobody seems to be able to find love because there is this relational malfunction in Genesis 3. 
right? The fall. You got Adam and Eve and God and creation. And then in Genesis 3, Satan enters the scene and and Satan says, God's just using you. God's manipulating you. God doesn't want what's best for you. God really doesn't love you. God really doesn't care about you. Why don't you listen to me? And there was a shift from this, this relational love between God and man that was beautiful to this relational love between man and man, which became self-centered, which became sensual, which became pleasure and idolatry and lust-driven. So the world is looking for love in all the wrong places because we are fallen, we are broken, we are sinners, and we can't get it right, although we really, really want to. There is this desire deep within us to experience love and to love well, but we just can't do it. In 1 John, we see the antithesis to the world's understanding of love. Love is not man-centered. It's not me-centered. It's not self-centered. Love is God, and God is love. John is telling us that over and over again. So you can't know the love that you long for, and you can't get the love that you desire to receive and to give others apart from God being in you and doing something fundamentally at the core of your being to change you. If we don't experience that, we'll never know love. We look at the word love, it's mentioned 744 times in its basic sense in the Greek and Hebrew uh, scriptures. In these six verses this morning, the word love is mentioned 13 times. And the word, the primary love is agape. Agape love is godly love. It's divine love. It's, It's affection and care and interest and cherishing and taking pleasure in. The kind of love we all want. The kind of love that trips us up and lures us in. And intoxicates us. That's not a bad thing. It's it's a love that is decisive. In other words, it's a rational love. While it is everything uh, emotional, it is. It is affection, care, interest, cherishing, taking pleasure in. But it is also a love that sets its affection upon an object or a recipient. And it doesn't waver with feeling or emotion or circumstances. That's God's love. That's agape love. It's everything that you could think of as having and feeling love inside, but it goes beyond that to say, I choose to set my love on you, and because of that, I'm going to love you with everlasting love. I'm going to love you with a steadfast love. I'm going to love you, and there's nothing that you can do to stop me from loving you. That's God's love for us. John's writing to this, the, the people. I'm, I'm thinking, if my memory's right, he's writing probably to Ephesus. John had pastored there on some level. It's probably 90 AD. John finds himself on an island. Patmos is kind of like Alcatraz. Some of you don't know what Alcatraz is. It used to be prison. I'm not sure what it is today. And it was, you know, right there, covered, surrounded by water. Who's going to get off? A few people did. But not many people have. People died trying to get off of Alcatraz. John was on this prison island. And he's writing to these people. He's concerned about them. They are discouraged. They're probably losing their way. And he covers several different important subjects, but none more important than the subject of love that he keeps going back to. And so as we read the text, let us understand what John is trying to get to here. And we find ourselves in verse 7. Let me read the text and then talk through it briefly this morning. He says, Beloved, and and that's important because if you look at verse 7 and you look at verse Uh, um, 11, he's bracketing his thoughts by addressing the beloved. He uses the word beloved. So if, if you're studying the text of Scripture, you look for these markers to say he's beginning, um, uh, he's beginning to go through this subject matter and he's coming to a conclusion of this subject matter by beginning to address them as beloved and also concluding with the beloved in verse 11. Let us love one another. There's the theme. This is the main thing that he wants us to understand. Let us love, let us continue to love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love really shouldn't be that big of a problem if you say you have a relationship with God. Love really shouldn't be that big of a problem if you say you know God. If you say you're saved. If you say, when I die, I know I'm going to heaven because I prayed the prayer, walked the aisle, filled out the car, did whatever. I know I'm going to heaven. Well, no, you can say whatever you want to say about why you think you're going to heaven, but he's saying, hey, if you know God, 
you will love one another. And the scary thing is, is he gives us some very specific ways that we'll love one another. That's the scary thing. We don't make the rules on this. We don't make the rules on it. He makes the rules on it. So he's saying love one another. So so we see the conspicuous presence of love, but we see the conspicuous absence of love. He's drawing a line and saying it's either or. Either you're doing this or you are not. He said anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he, he, he gives us this, this introduction and makes this proclamation, verses 7 and 8. Secondly, we see this demonstration. And again, when you study the text in, in verse 9 and in verse 10, you see him saying the same thing twice. He's making two separate points that fit together under the demonstration of love that we see in Christ. Look at verse 9. In this is in this the love of God. He said, look at verse 10. He says, in this is love. So as you study through, you're looking for these things. What is he trying to say to us? In this, the love of God was manifest among us, among us, in our presence, that God sent his only son into the world. That's the birth of Christ, the advent that we're talking about, that we're lighting candles in celebration of, so that we might live through There's this demonstration of love that we see in the Son. God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. He gives us a second point. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the the proclamation, verses 7 and 8, and the demonstration, verses 9 and 10. And here's the application. Get this. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us like this, we ought to love one another exactly like this. Now, you can talk about how you feel, and you can talk about what you think, and you can talk about what you've done, but we don't love out of the love and the life that is generated within us by God unless we love like this. He didn't say just love. He said love in some very specific ways. Beloved, if God so loved like this, if God loved us like this, we ought to love one another like this. No one, verse 12, has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected, is growing in us. And so while you may not see God in visible form, you can see God when you meet with other believers. Right? You can see God when you meet with other believers and experience him because he is in them loving you with his love through them. So let me, let me break it down this morning. First of all, we see the proclamation. He says, let us continue to love one another. The conspicuous presence of love, verse 7. He is assuming that love exists among the people that he's writing to. And he's saying, okay, love exists there. God's love exists. I'm telling you to unleash this love. I'm telling you to release this love. The love is inherent in us if Christ is in us because it is his love, it is his power, it is his energy, it is his presence. He's saying, now just release what is already in you. In the body of Christ, there should be a pervasive, prevailing presence of life-giving, redeeming love where whenever and wherever authentic believers intersect. Wherever true believers meet together, there should be this this force, this, this experiential force, this real force, this tangible force of love that is that is transpiring, that is intersecting, that is flowing back and forth between us as believers. Let us continue to love one another. There's nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith than how we love one another. Please hear that. There is nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith than how we love one another. And let me, let me just quantify that quickly. Let me give you a caveat. 
if that statement hits a snag in your theological erudition, you might be an unregenerate Pharisee. We'll tell you that right now. If the thought and the conversation and the study and the experience of love creates a problem for you, you, you might be a Pharisee. If, you're, if, you're, if you read that and you're no, 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 wait a minute, there are a lot of other things, there are a lot of other things. I didn't say there weren't a lot of other things. But if that hits the snag, you might have a problem. You might have a head filled with knowledge. You might have books or shelves filled with books. You might have a computer with the greatest programs and you look up every Greek and Hebrew word known to man. You may have degrees lining your walls. By the way, a little paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13. But if you don't have love, you might as well have been uh, out of tune gone. You might as well have been Zane. Good to see Zane this morning. Back there just beaten to his own rhythm while everybody else was trying to play. So, so, so there is nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith than how we love one another. And so he starts out by calling them beloved. It's a messianic title, but it's, but it's also a title that refers to Christians. He says beloved, and in saying beloved, he's saying you are the ones that are experiencing the love of the Father. You are the ones that are experiencing the love of the Son. You are the ones that are experiencing the love of each other. And by the way, if you read the last verse of John 17, that is what Jesus is praying for, that, that we would experience the love that he and the Father are experiencing. That's where he landed in his high priestly prayer. That should be important to us. So beloved, those who are surrounded by love and experiencing love personally and practically, those who are loved by God, you're not, you're not trying to make it up. You're not trying to force it. You're, you're beloved. You're loved by God. He says, let us love one another. Those who are Loved are tasked with being in this place, in this sphere, in this community where everyone is loving one another. So, beloved, let us continue to love one another. It's a reasonable statement. What's unreasonable is when people say they're Christians and they're unloving. Why should we love one another? He tells us in the text, love comes from God. Love is not self-generated. Love does not come from within me unless something is transformed within me. Love does not originate within me. Notice what the text, he says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. It's generated from God, not the human flesh. My natural man looks like James chapter 4 and verse number 1. Listen to, what, listen to what James 4, 1 says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that, you, that your passions are at war within you? That's what's going on inside of me. That's what's going on inside my natural man. Unless Christ comes in and changes me and gives me a new heart, gives me a new operating system. And when he gives me a new operating system, then love comes out of from God to us. That's what the text is saying. So that if we say that we have him inside of us, love should be coming out of us because love comes from him. Do you get that? He's trying to make that logical progression here. If you say you have him in you, then you are experiencing his love for you and if he lives in you and he has transformed you now his love should be coming out of you that is fundamental to the Christian life love comes from God if we have been born of God we will love if the life of God has been generated in us we cannot help but love because he is love and love comes from him if we have been born of God and love is generated out of us from him, we will know him, is what he says. He lays that out. He did that. I didn't do that. We would think, I'm just going to grab a bunch of knowledge, and I'm not opposed to knowing God. I'm not opposed to studying information. But if you stop at information, but what he's saying is the way that I know God practically and experientially and intimately is by loving him. I love him, and as I love him, I will grow in my knowledge of him. I will know him intimately and personally. And what a joy that has the possibility of being. So the conspicuous presence of love, verse 7, is the presence of his love conspicuous in your life. 
Verse 8, he says the conspicuous absence of love. Anyone, anywhere, for whatever reason, who does not love, and in this context, love other people or love one another, does not, absolutely does not know God because God is love. And if you know God, you will love one another. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 8. It's clear. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Anyone, anywhere, for whatever reason. You say, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I've been through. And I don't. I don't. I had to text a text a dear, dear, dear friend this morning who just lost her husband who was a dear, dear, dear friend this morning. And I said, I will not pretend to know what you're going through in the loss of your husband because I don't know. I don't know what you might be going through today. But I will tell you that there is nothing that you have been through that if Christ is living in you, justifies you in not loving. Okay? If, if love is not there, Christ is not there. If Christ is there, we love one another. And so he says, there is this conspicuous absence of love that speaks volumes. We can't write it off. We can't gloss over it. We can't glance by it. Anyone, anywhere, for any reason who does not love, does not know God, does not know God. He, he makes it clear, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9, um, he, he makes no bones about it. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother... Is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I don't, I don't know that it could be any clearer. First John 3, 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Is, is clearly commanded, but if you go all the way down through verse number 18, you, 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 you see, he says, don't be like Cain. We should not, believers shouldn't be like Cain. Cain goes out and he has contempt toward his brother. He murdered his brother. Some of us say we know Jesus and we, we relationally murder people. Any theological system that gives you permission to demean or degrade another human being that has been created in the image of God is not from the Bible. Why did he murder him? Because of his own deeds were evil. He goes on to tell us about, about love. But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And he tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, if you read further down, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there cannot be this conspicuous absence of love. Many people say that they love God. They say that they love his word. They say that they love his truth. But their hearts are filled with contempt. And contempt is powerful. When contempt is in my heart or when contempt is in your heart, you can walk into a room that is filled with love and turn it, turn it on its head. Where does our contempt come from? It comes from shame. Why would we feel shame? Because we want to be right. That's what happens a lot of times in church. That's why when somebody says, I'll tell you what, man, I love God. And I love God's word. Hallelujah. I love the truth. It's just these people I can't stand. What they're saying is they love being right. They love being right. And to not be right is shame. That's right. To not be right is shame. 
And if we're not right, bless God, and if we don't win the argument, that causes us to feel less than, it causes us to feel inadequate, which leads to contempt. Many people study the Word and love the Word and love the truth and say that they love God because they want to be right. And they're constantly looking for faults in others and are argumentative and honestly trust no one because if you trust anybody, you face the threat of being approached by someone who may say you're wrong. And if somebody says I'm wrong, I've immediately got to write them off. They can't be trusted if there's the possibility that they could say I'm wrong. Because if they say I'm wrong, then I'm filled with shame. Therefore, you touch my shame, I spring back with contempt. So life goes on. It's not a love for God. It's not a love for His Word. It's not a love for truth. It's a love for just flat out being right. Because right is life. That's what life is to me, is being right. And death is being wrong. And the only way to always be right is to make sure that everybody is always wrong, which means it's okay to love truth and love God and even love Scripture but not love people. Just a side note. Write this down. Be careful. It's in the church. Narcissism is a massive problem in the church. A narcissist is somebody who always has to be right. That's a classical narcissist. I'm 63 years old, ladies and gentlemen, and there are fewer and fewer things that I'm sure of. And you may think I'm a postmodernist or a liberal, but I'm not. I would, I would compare my conservatism and my studies and my love for the Scriptures and the truth to anybody's in this room. But I don't stand on that. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a progressive. I'm not a liberal I love God's word, but I just know that back in the day, there was just a lot of fight in me and a lot of contempt in me and a lot of self-exaltation in me and a desire to be right. And, and that comes out and that, that just poisons everybody and poisons everybody in the room. And there's no love. And a lot of the stuff that we thought we used to be so daggone right about, we found out it didn't even really matter to start with. We're just fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and not loving. And that happens in the context of professing believers a lot. Our arguments are different. Our information is different. But our spirit and our attitude and our energy is just like the world. Our arguments are biblical arguments. Our information is biblical information. But the energy that comes out of us is the same energy from the people that don't know God. And he's saying, hey, man, if there isn't love, if there isn't love, God isn't there no matter how much you think you know. Our desire to fight over what we think we know about God just might be a loud indication that we, quite frankly, don't really know God at all. So we see the proclamation. He's, he's clear. He minces no words. He reduces it down as far as it can be reduced down. Beloved, love one another. If God is in you, you're going to love one another. This is the proclamation. There's this expectation that those who know God and believe in him and trust in him and know him personally or have been born of him are going to be loving. And anyone who does not love, no matter what they know or no matter how many degrees they have or no matter how accomplished or impressive they are, if they don't love, they don't know God. That is the criteria that he's laying out for knowing God is love. But then he demonstrates it for us. In this, in this way, so here's this general concept of love. So what does love look like? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. This love is manifested. God is showing, illumining, highlighting, making visible, making plain, putting out in paint, plain view, making apparent what his love is. How is he doing it? He sent his son. He tells us two times that he sent his son. Let me say the first thing about God's love. God's love is life-giving. God's love is life-giving. Let me give you some context for that. Holy God 
was offended in the fall. Every one of us as human beings stand before holy God as sinners. And when God looks at us in our sin from the perspective and vantage point of his holiness, he is offended. You need to take note of that because the justification that you have for not letting love flow out of you is an offense. You offended me. And how dare you offend me? Right? That's what happens. God is offended. And out of that offense, God sent his perfect son to a fallen, hostile world, to human beings who were dead and deserved death because of their sin. And he came to those dead people and he gave those dead people his life. He died their death and gave them his life. He came into his own and his own received him not. He came into his own world. He came into everything that he created and he started walking walking among humanity, and they looked at the creator, they looked at the lover of their soul, and they said, we don't want you. Same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. We don't want you. If I was God, I would have said, hey, son, come back home now. (laughs) But God sent his son to die. God sent his son to die. That's what Christmas is about. Philippians 2 tells us, Philippians 2 tells us that the offended one sent his son, the the king of heaven, the prince of peace, to make himself of no reputation. Don't you mess with my reputation. Right? Don't you dare do that. I'm offended. Right? I don't love you, and I'm justified in it because I'm offended. God was offended. God sent his son, made himself of no reputation. And Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And there is this life force in in me that is not a human life, life force. The life that I now live is his life living through me. And the text is so clear. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Excuse me, verse 10, verse 9. Let me get back to verse 9. In this is love that was made manifest among us, revealed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Live through him means to be alive through him, to come to life through him, to have life and not death through him. The living Christ living in us that the thing that we call life is his life in us and flowing out of us. He took our sin. He took our death. He died our death in his place, and he has given those who trust him his life. God's love is a life-giving love. Secondly, God's love is a sin-bearing love. Verse 10, he loved, he sent, again, all Advent terminology, the birth of Christ terminology. Since love is generated outside of us based on regeneration, we don't, apart from God, love God. He makes that clear in the text. If any of us ever love God or anyone else, it's solely based on what God is and what he has done to him be all the glory. That's what he's saying. Notice the text. Look Look at verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we love God and if we love others, it is because God is operative in our life so that God gets all of the glory because it is his love to start with. No glory goes to me because of my love for him or for others. All of the glory goes to him. The text tells us God sent his son. God sent his son to be the propitiation. The only other time in scripture that propitiation is used is in 1 John 2, 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? Because if I'm going to love like he loved, then I've got to understand what it means to give life. And if I'm going to love like he loved, I've got to understand propitiation. I've got to understand what it means to bear sin. Because you see, holy God who was offended had every right to come to earth and say, every last one of you are going to pay for what you've done. Pay up. God sent his son and his son paid up for us. He said, I will 
provide the sacrifice as payment for your offense against me. He bore our sin. God is justly and rightly and righteously angry at sinners and angry at sin. He is holy. Propitiation is the means of an appeasing means of appeasing anger and averting wrath. God sent his son as a means of appeasing his anger and wrath on behalf of our sin. He sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin to satisfy his requirements. He did, he did this because he is loving. In this is love. So there is legitimate offense. There's no denying of the offense. And instead of holy God setting the offense Settling the offense by punishing the offender, he sends his perfectly innocent and holy son and punishes him instead of us so that he can accept us unconditionally into his presence. This is love. Love is life-giving and love is sin-bearing. He goes to the next verse, which is application. We see, we see this... this uh, you know, he, he, he makes this proclamation. Hey, hey, you, you know God? Oh, yeah, I know God? Oh, great. Love one another. Ah, uh, we're not really loving one another. Ah, you don't know God. Oh, wait a minute. It's more complicated than that. It's really not. It's really not. Now, let me, let me demonstrate love for you. Here's love. Love is life-giving. That's how Jesus loved. That's how the Father loved through His Son. Love is sin-bearing. That's how the Father loved through His Son. Look at verse 11. This is, this is crazy. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also, also in the same way, ought to love one another. He goes back to beloved again, those who are the recipients of His love. Since God is love and has generated life in us, since God has loved us like this, we ought to love one another like this. The model for our love for each other found in verse number 7 is God's love for us. Therefore, how should we love one another? As we celebrate the Advent season, let me tell you two ways that we as believers in Christ should love one another. We should love one another by giving life to one another. And we should love one another by bearing one another's sin. You say, what, 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 do, you, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Our love should be life-giving. Now, now watch this. Y'all get your pencils out because I'm going to give you a list of how to be life-giving. And I'm not. I can't tell you uh, how to be life-giving. All I can tell you is if you have his life in you, when Christ who is your life appears, all I can tell you is if you have his life in you, that you are going to be life-giving. I, I, can, I can tell you when I experience the life of Christ from someone else, and I can tell you when I experience the absence of the life of Christ from someone else. Some people, when you get around them, they are a gift, and you sense and experience something that is divine and life-giving. They're curious, they're caring, they're interested, they're hopeful, they're gracious. You feel lifted up. Something's painful, if something's difficult, if something's sinful, even in that, you, you just feel life coming from them, even when they're correcting you. And this is rare. This is the kind of love that is supposed to be the staple of the church. When we get together, we should be giving life to one another. This is the atmosphere and reality of the body of Christ, and it's rare, which means that there are many who really don't know God. Why? Because there is this absence of giving life to one another. I met this old guy when I was pastoring my first church. His name was Calhoun Johnson. I don't know, I don't know what his theology was. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was pretty conservative because I heard him preach. We didn't talk about theology. I'd get around Calhoun, and he just was so loving. And I just felt his love. And when he died, he, he would call me. He had cancer. He had, he, had col he had colon cancer. And they got it operated on. And it came back. And it's all throughout his body. And I went to see him. And he had these softball-sized knots on his chest. And going through all that he was going through, he still loved me. It, just the life of God was flowing out of him. Just flowing out of him. So he lay there dying. That's what we're supposed to be doing, folks. 
We're not supposed to be a, a bunch of beady-eyed people that are, that are scouring everybody's life to try to find some dirt under their fingernails. What about sin? Well, we deal with sin. You know what? There's, there's, uh, there, is, there is such a different energy in dealing with sin from the life of Christ that it is dealing with it from biblical knowledge and a human spirit. There's such a difference. Life giving. How do we love one another? We love one another by giving life. Our love should be life-giving. So many people come to church. Their lives are empty and dry and they're struggling and they're hopeless and they need help. And they see a sign that says church and they think it means life. And if we have the life of Christ in us, the life of Christ will flow out of us and they will experience his life. It's not a box we check. It's not a lever we pull. It is something that naturally occurs. And John is just saying, release it, release it, release it. Trust it. But secondly, our love should be sin-bearing. When someone sins against us, we want to get even. You sin against me, you pay. You sin against me, you owe me. Right? Some people, many of us can't forgive. You owe me and you make it right or else I write you off. Somebody sins against us, we're like, how dare you? A lot of times we drag it into the church. You sin against me, I'm going to bring you up on charges. We're going to have church discipline. Not as a means of grieving, not as a means of restoring, not as a means of loving, not as a means of purifying the church, but as a means of getting even. For those of you who want to get even, for those of you who want blood, for those of you who want payment for the offenses against you, let me just, let me just write this down. You aren't that holy. You got, offense, you got an offense against somebody. You're clutching to something. You're hanging on to it. Your knuckles are turning white because you have been offended, legitimately offended. You have been legitimately sinned against. And you're saying, I'm, they owe me. They're going to pay. They, they're going to get even. I'm going to make sure this is right. You aren't that holy. And the same judgment that you use to judge others, mark it down, is going to be the same judgment that is used to judge you as opposed to saying, I realize holy God drugged me off the trash heap of life. And I just got to be honest with you. I, I've never gotten over it. I'm sorry if that doesn't impress you. I'm sorry if I can't make you feel like you're getting on some important train and taking some important theological ride somewhere. I'm just not me. I'm just an old blue-collar guy that hadn't gotten too far away from the fact that I know that I'm still a sinner and I know that I failed miserably and I was drugged off the trash heap of life and I'm still standing down at the bottom of it remembering where I came from but looking at what Christ has done and celebrating who I am in Him and I haven't gotten over that enough yet to run around and try to snoop on everybody else to find out what they're doing wrong. You say, you want sin in the body? No, I don't want sin in the body. But when I find sin, I want to be broken over it. I don't want to break people over it. I want to be crushed over it. I don't want to sit around like King Tut on a throne, crossing my arms and looking down my nose like they stink. Our love should give us the capacity to set people free from sin. You say, well, you think you're God? You think you're... Would you please stop? I don't think I'm God. But he does live in me. And I can point him to the cross. I guarantee you, the cross will do a whole lot more for them than somebody's contempt. I 
I can forgive others because I've been forgiven. I can offer them from me the same thing that I got from Jesus because it is available to them as well. I remember just in Ephesians 4.31, you say, wow, where's that coming from? Yeah, but somebody, I tell you what, if I, I'm, I'm not going to forgive somebody unless they ask me to forgive them. Unless they repent, bless God, I'm not forgiving them. Bring the choir up, let's sing holy, holy, holy. Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. How did Christ forgive you? But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not sitting around waiting for you to pay before I bear sin, before I say I can take that. I can handle that. I can bear that. I can bear that. I can bear that offense against me. It's okay that you offended me. I can bear that. It's okay that you hurt me. I can bear that. Went to my first church in the early 80s. That pastor should have fired me a hundred times. I was only there 14 months. He should have fired me a hundred times. Ralph, if you're out there, call me. I'd love to talk with you. One Sunday morning, we were sitting in Bible study. And uh, somebody said something about the baptistry. And I remembered that I turned it on Friday afternoon. This was Saturday morning. Didn't have a valve that shut the water off. I turned white, I jumped up, I ran into the sanctuary. Water was flowing over the top of the baptistry. Water was halfway down the sanctuary. I walked in, I said, Pastor, I've, I didn't turn the baptistry off. He didn't say a word to me. He didn't say, you're an idiot. He didn't say, how could you? But about 20 guys got together. And they started vacuuming up water with their, with their shop vacs. It was my problem. It was my problem. It was my wrong. I was, it was my carelessness. Do you know what? 40 years later, nobody's ever said a word to me about that. Why? Because they bore that with me. He said, you know what, your ours, your mind, your family, we'll bear it together. We'll bear it together. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? To love one another. Verse 12, he closes it out. And I, I just, if y'all forgive me for being emotional, uh, I know somebody's going to judge me for being emotional. One of my best friends in the world died this morning. We grew it all over Africa together. And I don't want your sympathy. I don't want your pity. Um, he loved me like this. He loved me like this. And it's really hard. Um, he hired me to serve at a church on staff. Gave me opportunity. And he and his wife just loved me and Mandy. If Mandy had a sister, his wife Martha would be my wife's sister. Verse 12 closes it out. No one has ever seen God. Correct. But... When we love like this, we make him undeniably visible. No one has ever seen God, but when we love like this, when we give life and when we bear sin in the body, Jesus is seen. So, so we've been done wrong, and we got even Jesus ain't seen in that. Jesus isn't seen in our contempt. Jesus is seen when we're giving life between one another and we're bearing sin for one another. 
Love has been given to us, he's saying in this text, and love should be flowing from us. And when it is, love shows, here's what he's saying. Notice, notice what he says in the text. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. He's right there, and his love is perfected in us. His love is growing in us. So, so when we love one another like this, love is showing and love is growing, and the presence and power of God, although you may not see it and be able to record it on your phone and, and send it to somebody else or put it on Instagram, it is still undeniable whenever we are around other transformed followers of Jesus Christ. So, Advent, God sent his son. God sent his son to give life. And God sent his son to bear sin. And God sent his son to come live in you and me so that when we get together, we can give life to one another. And when we inevitably sin, as do I, as does my wife, to other people in the body. You know what the first inclination is when somebody's in sin? What's the first inclination when somebody's in sin? (laughs) Say it. Not to come to church. (laughs) Right? I ain't going today. Why? I'm in sin. That's why people quit. They're like, I ain't going. I'm in sin. My conscience is bothering me. By the way, I don't want anybody to know about it, so I'm just going to quit. It ought to be the first place we run through. Why? Run to why? Because there's somebody there to bear. Somebody there to bear. Somebody there to say, you, you messed up. Get out the vacuum cleaners. We're going to get this water up, guys. Come on, everybody. Our brother's in trouble. Our brother's in trouble. So love one another. We have uh, juice that represents blood. Reminds us of the blood of Christ. His blood was poured out for us. We have bread that represents his body. They're reminders of, of his death and his burial and his resurrection. They're reminders of the gospel. Except they're not things that we say. They're things that we look at as symbols. And those symbols have an impact and say things to us that words can't express. And if you have trusted Christ and you're resting in him, we invite you to come today. If there is some sin that you're hanging on to that you think is more important than your relationship with him, we would ask you not to partake. But I would also say if up to this moment there is sin in your life, if you would repent of it, if you would confess it, if you would forsake it, come and enjoy this family meal. And if there is sin that you're struggling with, come and let us help you with it. Come on, let us walk with you through that sin. I know I need help. I know I need help. And you may not admit it, but I know you need help too.